Welcome to today's edition of the Baseball America College Podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me, as always, is Joe Healy. We will also be joined a little bit later today by Washington State coach Brian Green. Excited to have him on the the program today to talk a little bit about the Cougars, a little bit about his former player, Nick Gonzalez, who next week will uh, be a, a premium pick in the upcoming MLB draft. So we'll, uh, we'll get into all of that and more uh, with Brian Green here in a few minutes. Speaking of the draft, it begins next Wednesday. Uh, you can check out plenty of content at BaseballAmerica.com to help you get prepared for it. Carlos Colazzo has shepherded the coverage, as always, all 500 scouting reports for the BA 500, top 500 draft prospects in this year's draft are online uh, for subscribers to view. We've got plenty of features. And if you are a subscriber, you hopefully are getting, I don't know, the mail's been delayed a little bit, I know, but hopefully you have received your copy of our draft preview issue with Spencer Torkelson on the cover. I have a story about Tork in there. Joe has a story about Isa Lacey. Uh, There's a lot of other good content in there and online. So if you're looking to get prepared for the draft next week, uh, no, look no further than baseballamerica.com. So uh, as we uh, as we roll into June here, though, uh, you know this was supposed to be regionals weekend. Uh, instead, it was not um, due to the season being canceled. If you're uh, if you've been in a coma, I guess. Uh, if you finally rolled that rock canceled. off of you. <laughs> season was canceled. There was no regionals this weekend. Uh, but Joe and I, uh, mostly Joe. Uh, put together a ranking of the 25 best underdog uh, regional champions. Uh, if you want to peruse that, Joe, as you were putting that together, I, I imagine that's a that's a topic near and dear to your heart. Regional Cinderellas. Uh, what was it like going down the memory lane of the uh, of the Field of 64 era, looking for for the best uh, underdog regional winners? Yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was. Uh... Yeah, it's a good way to put it. It was supposed to be regional weekend, instead it was ranking regional underdogs weekend. It was not doesn't quite have the zing <laughs> to it. it, but it was a lot of fun. I, you know, I, I kind of put <clears throat> the regional underdog champions into two buckets, and there's it, it's not quite that simple, but you kind of have the bucket of even in hindsight and with the the benefit of time, still seems kind of crazy. Um, you know, I would put you know, 2,000 Penn State into that into that. Uh, bucket you know they hadn't been to regionals for a couple decades and haven't been in a couple decades since and this one time they got to the postseason they got to a super regional so that one kind of seems um, a little bit uh, out of the ordinary there and still does like years and years later Uh, so that's one example the other bucket is kind of the oh this was the start of something or this is indicative of what was kind of going on in that program or in college baseball at that time although they haven't gotten back to this stage as often or, or at all since then, I think of like O2 Florida Atlantic this way, um, you know, kind of a program that was finding its footing and building something. And now we see that it's, it's, it's a regional, the regional caliber team just about every year. So that was something I think the bigger example of that, however, is 07 Louisville. Dan McDonald's first year at Louisville. I remember watching that Louisville team and I saw them for the first time in the super regional against Oklahoma state and still kind of thought, like, I'm not really sure what I'm looking at here. And then they, they go to Omaha and they, they compete well. Um, they just weren't quite ready to compete fully at that level. But I mean, that's as clear as day, a 
signal that, hey, something is happening here. And, and Louisville, to be fair to, to, to Lilo Prado, who was the coach at, at Louisville prior to that, you know, they were – Louisville had been improving the years prior. So Dan McDonald takes over, had a pretty good group of players and was able to really capitalize on that in 07. But, but that was the start of, of that era there. I think another one that's really interesting to me, and I didn't know the full extent of this, but one of the other ones that stood out to me is 06 Missouri – which is probably one of the strangest four seeds in the history of college baseball in the 64 team era full stop. Because for one thing, it was a preseason top 10 team. They had Max Scherzer and Aaron Crow on the pitching staff. They were only a four seed really because, you know, I shouldn't say that I, I wasn't paying attention to it at the time that closely. So I can't say this for certain, but a big part of it you have to assume was that Max Scherzer missed some starts during the course of the season if he's fully healthy, you have to think that's a team that's never going to be on the four line. Also, they were a four seed at large. And I didn't do a full accounting of how many four seeds. Has that ever happened? You know, I, like you know, I did not do the full accounting of it. I'd be interested to do that. Just didn't really have the time and space to do it. But they were 12 and 15 in the Big 12. And mind you, this is the Big 12 kind of at the, at the peak of its power, or something close to it, really humming along before a lot of the, the – um, conference realignment stuff happened, but a four seed at large, just hard to, hard to really imagine the scenario where that was the case. What I should have done is looked at who the threes were and see like, who was, you know, who was that, who were the automatic bids that maybe should have been fours instead of, instead of Mizzou. And maybe that, maybe it's just more that the three seed automatic bids were really strong in that given year. There were some mid majors maybe that were better than you would expect. So maybe that's it, but just a really strange situation where it's a team that should not have been on the four seed, should have been closer to a host, ends up on the four line, kind of lives up to its potential in the end. You feel bad for Pepperdine. We talked about this with Mike Rooney when he was on the podcast last week. You know, Pepperdine kind of has this history of playing really well in the front half of regionals and struggling in the second half of regionals. And, you know, this was another case of that for Pepperdine. You know, Missouri does that at the expense of the waves. Then the next year in 07, Missouri hosts. And it was that Louisville team that actually won that 07 regional in Columbia. So Missouri ends up kind of getting the, uh, you know, maybe the other shoe dropping there in 07, where they end up hosting without Max Scherzer, by the way. It was the pitching staff led at that point by, by Aaron Crow. Kyle Gibson was there as well. Uh, that ends up losing as a host in 07. So interesting little bit of history there. But, but 06 Mizzou in the, what was an interesting one. And then the 07 Louisville, obviously, is the start of something new there with the Cardinals. So that was the more interesting part to me was really to look at these, these um, underdog regional winners and just the context of where they were, who was hosting in the regional they were in, like who were on these teams as kind of interesting snapshots year by year in, in college baseball. And it always, it, it kind of also speaks to how pervasive these underdog winners are in our sport. And I'm, and I'm thankful for that, obviously. Because there were, there were very few years where there wasn't at least some team that should have been on the periphery of this discussion. There were some, some years like 2019. that. 2019 is, is, certainly, is certainly one of those, yes. I think I seem to remember maybe 90, 99, the first year of the 64 team era, didn't really have any either. Um, so, and some of that is there were some hosts along the way. Ohio State 99, for example, hosted in the first year of the 64 team era, which is probably not something you would have expected given the history of that league. Minnesota hosted in 2000. So there were some examples where maybe the apple cart got completely turned upside down there in terms of the hierarchy. But there were a few years where there was really 
nothing in, in the way of an underdog regional champion. And I think that was, that was kind of a nice reminder too, because sometimes it can seem that we are really trending away from that in college baseball. And this was a nice reminder that, well, no, it hasn't been that long ago since we've had some pretty big upsets in regionals. So uh, a lot of fun to do still was a little bit of a, a uh, little bit of a sad weekend in terms of not having regionals going on. I, I saw some tweets out there about, you know, it was fitting that it was regionals weekend because it was raining wherever this person was. And that kind of seems far for the course, uh, certainly in here in Durham last weekend or last week, pardon me, we, we had plenty of rain ourselves, but um, so yeah, this was a nice little diversion to kind of uh, to, to fill that gap a little bit. I hope as a reader that you're feeling the same as you read it this week, it kind of take you down memory lane with some of these regionals to help deal with the fact that, that we didn't have any this time around. Yeah, I think, um, well, first of all, I sent one of those tweets because uh, it was pouring here in Durham on Friday. But the, uh, the other thing about the, the underdogs, especially at the turn of the century, is my understanding back then was the committee was looking at it, trying to get regionals in different places. That's part of the reason why the Big Ten had some hosts, why Rutgers hosted. Uh, that regional, the Penn State one, um, there were there was it was much more common to host as a two back then, both because they were trying to do that, and also because there were less places that could host. Like East Carolina um, was a traveling one early on, and obviously now that would never happen uh, because Clark LeClaire Stadium is, uh, is is very well suited for a regional and, and just a, a great stadium. But but back then uh, it wasn't. And so, you know, a lot, a lot's happened in the last 20 years in, in that regard. And, um, you know, we'll see uh, where we're going if, if 2019 starts becoming more common or not. Um, you know, my guess is we kind of are heading to an era like that. But at the same time, the start of the 2020 season was kind of heartening in that, you know, Pepperdine pops up, uh, Long Beach State comes roaring back. Uh, UCSB uh, continue to be strong. And so some of these uh, schools outside of, you know, traditional power conferences, um, at least in the broader sense of that word, not or in the football sense of the word, I guess, um, you know, the Big West is kind of like right on the edge of like, are they a power conference or not in baseball? Um, maybe a major conference is a better way to, to talk about them. But anyway, I, we had more schools like that and less just pure power five domination. Uh, so we'll, we'll see where, where that goes, but you can check out the uh, full top 25 led by Stony Brook. We, we should, uh, should mention shouts to 2012 Stony Brook for being the, uh, the biggest underdog in, in a, to, to win a regional as, as declared by us. It definitely was more, just quickly on that, it was it was definitely more philosophical than I expected it to be. I mean, you and I had a couple of conversations over the weekend about how exactly we rank these. And I think there's a, some people might look at this and go, well, how is Fresno State not number one because they, they won the national championship? And they're a little bit, they've got a little bit of 06 Mizzou in them, to be honest. I mean, preseason ranked team that underachieved a little bit, which then allowed them to overachieve when it was all said and done. So you know, there were a lot of factors we took into account here. One of them is what you did after the regional. Um, I would say it was, you know, second or third, perhaps in the list. I mean, first is just the, how believable was it going into the weekend that you could win this regional context was important. Like we gave with the Mizzou example, Fresno state example, um, how things went during the regional. I mean, 2018 Mississippi state is on this list. They were a two seed from the sec, not traditionally, 
would fit in anyone's definition of an underdog, but the way that regional transpired, everything going on at Mississippi State in that program leading up to that regional got them on this list. So context was important too. So it definitely was more, there was a little bit more philosophy involved with this top 25 than I imagined, but I think it, it made it definitely made it a more interesting exercise as opposed to just kind of, okay, all the four seeds, there were six or seven four seeds that won regionals. So those are the top six or seven, what have you. And then we'll go to the threes. And then if we have space left over, we can look at some twos, things like that. And, and there was a little more philosophy going on in there. And I think that made for a more interesting list overall. Absolutely. I, uh, it, it made for an interesting read. And so if you're, if you're looking for uh, a trip down memory lane or just to, to remember some of these uh, Cinderella's, I would encourage you to check it out over at baseballamerica.com. Uh, the other thing this weekend was uh, away from baseball and, and away from sports was a uh, pretty rough weekend in, in a lot of respects. Obviously, the protests continued uh, following the death of, of George Floyd in police custody um, last week. And, you know, you're here for the baseball talk, and we're definitely going to give that to you. We'll be a little bit. We'll, we'll get back to it uh, momentarily. But this week's protests are a reminder that there's some bigger things going on in the baseball, and they spill into the game, really no matter whether, whether you want them to or not. Baseball over the years has been, I would say, very proud of its role in the civil rights movement and what it stood for. In the post-war period, uh, there are two college baseball teams that play in stadiums named for Jackie Robinson, for instance. Obviously, you see what MLB does on Jackie Robinson Day. You know, UCLA usually gets into that as well, uh, given their connection. Obviously, he's an alum. Um, and, and there are just a lot of ways that, that baseball tries to remember that. Um, and then this week, you know, with so many people around the country hurting from racism, Voicing that anguish, uh, we've seen others around, or many others around college baseball uh, speak up, either sharing their own experiences in pain, maybe they're amplifying others, uh, or expressing an interest in, in being part of the solution going forward. And so I just wanted to, to share a few of those that, um, you know, got, got thrown out there uh, on Twitter and other statements. Um, and the first one I wanted to, to bring to our call to attention was from uh, Texas's Cameron Fields, uh, who, you know, is, uh, is an important player for, for the Longhorns. And, and he starts his statement like this. First, I'd like to start by saying I truly appreciate my non-Black friends who have reached out to me in regards to everything that's going on across the country right now. It's an unpleasant time right now, but not an unfamiliar one. We need everyone in this fight for change, not only for ourselves, but for the future generations. We're responsible for young lives that don't have a clue about racism, systematic injustice, and the complete evils that control this country. We have to show them a better way. We have to educate them and lead them on a path of honor, unity, and compassion for their brothers and sisters. This starts at home. It's time to be the voice for the youth. Be the change you want to see in the community. We have to take control of our communities with the right plan and an open mind. Be open to change, no more settling for norms. Elevate your, your thinking and step out of your comfort zones. Don't do it just for yourself. Think about your younger family and friends, the impressionable ones who have a whole life ahead of them. They're the ones who will reap the good and the bad from this. 
And one more from Ball State assistant coach, uh, Blake Beamer, if I can pull that up. So Blake's is, is pretty long. Um, and I, it is worth reading its entirety. You can find it on my Twitter. I just retweeted Blake, but um, I, I wanna, wanna jump in kind of, uh, kind of midstream here, uh, you know, with, with Blake. Statistically speaking, it's already out of my control. Black men are two and a half times more likely to be killed by police than white men. Almost five from two very loving parents, white dad, black mom. But it also means I know the name Dylan Noble. I know better than to think it's a simple black and white issue. I know white men die too. Any loss of life is terrible. And one bad cop doesn't mean all policemen are bad. But far too often the system fails people of color. Calling a group isn't going to help anything in a similar way that looting and causing destruction doesn't help either. I wish I had immediate answers. Um, Blake continues, I'm skipping around a little bit here. We must find love in our hearts. We must be willing to have difficult conversations. We must find empathy, compassion, and love to drive out hate and ignorance. Like most of you, I'm hurt, I'm sad, I'm mad, I'm confused, and yes, I'm afraid for if I'm lucky to have an lucky enough to have a son or daughter, what will his or her world look like? But that fear doesn't mean we quit fighting, quit voting, quit listening, and quit loving. It just it must make us love harder. So those are a couple of the sentiments uh, we, we've heard from around the college baseball world. There, there are more. Arizona State's Tracy Smith had, I thought, a, a pretty great statement. Um, it was very Tracy. Dan McDonald made a statement. Edwin Thompson, Spencer Allen uh, made a nice video on Twitter that uh, I would encourage you to, to go watch. So there are a lot of people around college baseball, um, you know, that are, that are paying attention right now and, and speaking about this or, or, you know, expressing, um, you know, what they're feeling and what they're seeing. And I think those sentiments are important to consider as we look for ways to move forward. I think everyone can hope for peace, but to get there, there's probably going to have to be some reckoning and definitely some healing. Hopefully college baseball can be a part of that. Hopefully baseball writ large can be a part of that. Uh, but you know, on a weekend that was challenging in a lot of ways, um, just to absorb everything that was going on, I, I think that uh, it's important to think about these things. Clearly people in athletic leadership positions and just the athletes themselves are thinking about these things. Uh, Mark Emmert said that the NCAA isn't, hasn't done enough yet to, to help. Uh, I think a lot of universities echo those statements and there are a lot of, um, you know, we, we've seen a lot of, of college athletes in, in all sports, you know, coming together on, on this issue and, so I, again, th this is a baseball podcast. We're going to get back to the baseball here, but you know, as, as these things continue happening around the country, it, it's, uh, it's important to, to acknowledge them. And, and that's what people in the game are doing. And so I wanted to, to take a couple minutes here on the podcast to do so as well. 
All right, I don't think we're going to get a smooth transition out of that. Um, so with that, we're going to, to go hard break, and we're going to come right with you uh, to uh, our, our interview with, with Brian Green, uh, head coach at, at Washington State, uh, who uh, you know was he had the Cougars in his first season in Pullman, uh, you know, moving in a, a, a good direction. They won seven of their last nine games before the season was canceled. Uh, they finished up, I believe, nine and five overall. Um, and, you know, right at the start of Pac-12 play is, of course, when the season gets canceled. So we didn't get to see them, you know, how they would fare against their, their conference foes. But it, it was a, an encouraging start for the Cougars. And I know he's very excited about the direction of the program overall. So let's get to that with, uh, with Brian Green right now. Today, we're very excited to be joined on the Baseball America College podcast by Washington State coach Brian Green. Coach, uh, you know, we were talking just before we got on the air here, uh, and you were explaining just how, how cougar crazy Pullman is. I, I imagine that, uh, you know, it's been, uh, it's been interesting settling in there, but, but how, are you, uh, how are you handling the... Uh, or how have you adjusted to, to your new surroundings, I guess now just a year after you uh, accepted this job at, at Washington State? Well, thanks for having the Cougs on. Uh, Teddy and Joe, we're excited. I'm excited. Um, you know, Pullman has welcomed us with open arms, my wife Becky and my two kids, Emily and Zoe, and our coaching staff. And our players welcomed us in too. But um, it has been as warm of a welcome as, as I've ever been a part of. It's, uh, it's a unique place. It's a college town. Uh, you know, there's cougar prints uh, at the intersections of the three or four major intersections that we have in this college town. And uh, there's cougars outside of everyone's home and, and people are coog crazy up here. So um, being the head coach is an unbelievable opportunity and responsibility and, and honor. And, uh, and we have been pumped ever since we got here. But Pullman has been a, a really great place to be. And, and even during the COVID times, um, it's warm and friendly and, and uh, in such a safe environment. So We've been handling it really good. Um, it gave us an opportunity maybe to get inside a couple more weeks when it was cold. Um, <laughs> and I'll talk about that plenty, but um, it's been an opportunity for all of us to either, you know, choose positive or negative. And for us, um, we've really jumped into development, but um, we're honored to be on with the podcast and, and we're pumped to be in Pullman. It's, it's been really great, guys. I think it's been just about a year to the day where you were, you know, taking this job. Um, a lot's happened since then, you know, on field, off the field and everything. But as you, uh, as you look back on, on your first year with the Cougars, what, what have you learned, um, you know, since you took over the program? Well, it's been, yeah, it's, uh, we're about to the day uh, where we were given the opportunity at this position. And, um, you know, when we look back, it's just, guys, we just look at it with pride. Um, we look back with, when we started this thing, we, we, we try to reverse engineer a three-year vision and anything that we do. And so before we started, we said, what's the program going to look like in three years? And then utilize that to work backwards and, and try to hammer out those goals. Um, you know, with the, the new facility coming in, that was a gold mine that I was walking into. I update the fans with that weekly, but it's a $10 million project. Um, the brick is on the front of the building. It's an all-in building. That's very exciting. So that, that's been a major change just from an aesthetics situation and then obviously for the recruits that hey it is going in uh these weren't just pictures but you know when we reflect back on a year of that press conference at just about a year ago to the day and sitting up on the podium saying we're going to do these things um and then to look back and see what we accomplished 
Uh, we had a major shift in culture. Uh, we had a very, a very different feeling from the fall to the spring, just in terms of optimism and belief and confidence. Uh, that was really exciting for the coaching staff, you know, going seven and two in our last nine games was, we felt it coming a little bit with momentum. That was exciting. Um, we were the school's comeback sports team of the year as voted on by the athletes. Um, we had the Mr. Cougar award. We had a top 10 senior in AJ block. We set a GPA record uh, with our team in the fall, the highest one we had ever accomplished. So when I look back, Teddy, I just, it is a ton of pride. A ton. I'm just proud of the players. I'm proud of the coaches and, and it gives us a lot of confidence moving forward that we're sending the right message and, and, and the players are interested in following suit. And, um, and it just feels really good right now. So, I mean, we are kind of sky high going into year two. You may have touched on it just there, but in a short period of time that you, you really truthfully had during the 2020 season, what left you most encouraged for the future of the program? Yeah, Joe, I just, I think the belief, um, you know, you go into a season where you haven't won an opening game in 10 years. Um, and you go into a season where you won 11 games last year and on opening night, um, we get a couple of two strike two out hits, uh, you know, in the ninth and 10th inning to open up your year on the road. Um, I think it's five come from behind wins, um, one run victories. And, and obviously it's not about the win or the loss, but it's about the attitude in our opinion. And, um, just seeing those things, um, I think the coaching staff really, the way that we competed throughout those, um, 16 games that we had under our belt, we were really, really excited because, Joe, what we saw was a, a group in the fall who was committed to wanting to get in, but just I didn't feel like they were comfortable or wanted to or didn't know how to or maybe just flat out didn't trust us as a staff. And I think come late January, you just saw a shift um, in the body language and a shift in the buy-in when we're talking in the meetings of maybe some more heads are shaking or maybe a player just simply laughs when we tell a joke. It was silence for two months. Um, and I think that's where you started to see it shift. And then you saw a much more confident team on the field. And um, dugout was great. It was energized. It just – it was a big turn in about a three-month period. And I haven't been a part of something like that in a year one situation. You know, I was – New Mexico State, we won 11 games my first year as a first-year head coach and was with Coach Savage at UCLA in 05 when we won 16. And um, it, it just – it was a lot of pride this year to, to see our kids turn, and it was pretty exciting. This is obviously going to be such a unique challenge for coaches having, especially coaches like you, I think, when you were in a first year in a program where you, you have that first year, you know, get, get kind of cut out from under you before you've even really gotten started, and then you're going to have to roll into year two. What are the kind of things you're thinking about to make your year two in the job and in the second year of the players kind of getting accustomed to you and your coaches feel like a year two and a, and a move forward as opposed to just feeling like one long continuation of your first year? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, what we've tried to do is just utilize this opportunity and, and it's a great opportunity. So I can tell you a few of the things that we're doing guys is just, um, we've created an online course, um, of which our players, and it's still not completed from our side, the administrative side, but what we're dumping into that thing is, uh, mechanics, both on the mound and at the plate, uh, our culture program, um, our work ethic and our mental game program. Those are the four envelopes or folders that we have that we try to dump into it all the time and when I say that that's one of the big things that we're trying to do is can we get ahead come fall time I feel like we're going to be a month ahead of training with the kids um, and we're going to right now we're using the time 
to strengthen mechanics, culture, and one pitch at a time mentality the best that we can off of the field with our current team. And then we're also trying to implement our future team to get that same information. So when we start, um, we're ahead. You know, they've seen the core values, the core characteristics, the oath of the program. They're comfortable with it. Um, you know, these are things that we didn't have time to do before. So that's the one piece of getting ahead with the players that we've tried to utilize. And then the second piece is, is the big culture part that we've tried to do is just keeping it fresh once a week, bringing in guest speakers who back up and defend the message that we want to send as coaches. Um, and then the third thing, guys, that we've, we just – we did have some experience. I know we didn't get into pack play, but we put 16 games under our belt. That felt pretty good. We, we finished on a high note, winning seven of nine. And, and we're going to bring back enough of experience um, to where we feel like it really will be a year two um, to where we just said, look, this year is over. And now let's build on year two right now. So we're just trying to get a jump start. And I'm really excited about the idea was, was from Coach Rolovich with our football program, the online course, starting with Coach Leach with his classroom. But I've never done anything like that. We have the resources here in Pullman to do it. So our kids are particularly the recruits coming in for their first year, um, they will be so far ahead of any program I've ever been a part of just in terms of how we operate um, that it's going to cut our time down. And, and I'm excited about that. Whenever we can get on the field, uh, we're going to be a lot more prepared as, as a unit. That is a, a really interesting idea. And, um, you know, I can see how that would be a big help, uh, you know, as you, as you, you know, bring in a, an influx of, of new players, as I know you're um, preparing to do. I know you're excited about your recruiting class this year. Uh, but you mentioned the, the facility and, and the work that's being done on that. You guys broke ground on it uh, in October. And, you know, it's, uh, it, it continues to progress, as you said. What is, uh, you know, what excites you about the facility? And is it still on track for, for an opening in time for 2021 season? You know, when I walked in to the interview room last year, um, I, I had heard uh, that there was a new facility potentially coming. We all talked that talk in college baseball and college athletics about our new facility and the drawings. Uh, but when I walked into the interview room and they were up onto the wall from the administration saying, this is going down now, uh, we're going to need your input if you happen to be the guy with regards to what we want to do with this thing. I mean, I was blown away. I'd been to Pullman a few times, you know, at UCLA and, and at Oregon State. And then in New Mexico State, we actually came up here and played a midweek as well. Um, and so knowing Pullman, the college town and the Pac-12, um, and then knowing the facilities coming in, my excitement level was immediately uh, heightened. But the facility is, is on track. Um, some things that I didn't consider about the facility you really saw this year. Um, you know, our, our offices in Pullman right now currently are, are in a great, um, the bowler complex, but it's across the street from the baseball stadium. It's not connected to the players. So the, the biggest, most important thing I'm looking forward to is an all-in facility where it's coach's office, classroom, lounge, nutrition area, weight room, locker room, equipment room, training room, concessions, uh, coach's locker room, uh, conference room. It's all there. Um, and the thing that most excites me that I think we saw this year is you, you lose that interaction with your players uh, when they come into the locker room. And I think when you're connected, you have a lot more of your kids coming in and just hanging out in the office with you a little bit. It strengthens relationships. It, it enables the communication to go, which is the hardest thing to do as a coach is to touch our kids every day. So 
being able to touch the kids on a daily basis uh, will be an incredible benefit for us. Uh, the classroom in the facility, uh, which is a huge window building, we'll go from classroom right to the field every day. Uh, it's a 65 seat um, office type space in a great room setting with a 70 inch TV and a whiteboard. So having the opportunity to meet inside uh, before we go outside is another thing that is such a big deal about being intentional with our thoughts and and also just with regards to the NC2A and your time, uh, you, you know, being able to split up meetings versus um, activity on the field. And then obviously just for the simple fact of the kids at Washington State, uh, they're walking across the street right now from the field or from the locker room to the field. And I, I'll be a little honest here, Teddy, sometimes it gets a little bit cold in Pullman. Um, I will say <laughs> so, um, that's one of the things that, It'll be a big benefit for the kids uh, after batting practice on game days. They can go inside the clubhouse. And then the last thing, just the biggest piece, is the value statement that it makes for the administration for Washington State and where we stand in the Pac-12. Um, it puts a statement of value to the recruits that baseball is important just like it is to the rest of the schools. And uh, the administration has certainly made that statement. So, so many benefits. Obviously, I've spent a lot of time thinking about that question, but uh, it's just it's, it's an incredible investment and incredible jumpstart to the program and I think that's reflected on our recruiting class that we've signed. Yeah absolutely always good to see programs invest like that you know especially at a place you know like Washington State that has some historic success and, and is yeah. you know, trying to get back to to that level you know important to, to make those investments to to keep up with everyone else in the conference. Yeah well, and I can tell you that, yeah, just, I mean, just with that, you know, in the building process, it, it's just been such a long time coming and, you know, I'll use the opportunity, but we just do, we've got an unbelievable support system coming from our president, you know, and he's been in the SEC, he's been in the big 12, he believes in athletics, uh, he, he is a tremendous, uh, unbelievable worker, and then our athletic director, Pat Chun, I mean, these guys are machines, and um, they believe in athletics, they understand Washington State. I mean, this is Corvallis is really what it is. It's a college town. It's small. There's not a lot going on other than the athletics and the university. Um, and what an unbelievable place to build and create some excitement. I mean, guys, when we played this this year, we were four and one in our five home games in week four and a midweek. You know, it's it's maybe 40 degrees. It's, it's gray. It's cold. Um, and we've got a thousand people in the stands and people are going nuts. And you're just looking at this going, wow, this can be a beast. Uh, people really, really are into Cougar athletics. And if you've ever been to a football game here or seen some of the stuff from the college game day stuff a couple years back, I mean, it's, it's nuts out here. Uh, when Clay Thompson came to our basketball game, it's just a really cool place. So yeah, it, it does. It gives us an opportunity to, to the recruiting side, say we're in with everyone else, gives our kids that pride. Um, that brings us back to the John Allerud and Tom Meadenfewer and the 76 team, the last team to go to Omaha. But, um, it just puts us on that level playing field and with the talent in Washington, um, it's just, it's a tremendous opportunity for all of us. There are so many reasons why you'd be successful in Pullman. So I'm obviously I'm pretty jacked about it. <laughs> well, you came to Washington state from New Mexico state and you know, one of the, the key players you had on your teams there was, was Nick Gonzalez, who uh, you know, listeners obviously know is a, premium draft prospect, um, you know, and expected to go in the, the first five to 10 picks, I would say in, uh, in next week's draft, when you were, um, 
when, when you were coaching Nick, you were able to see him, you know, up close and everything, but what, what in your mind makes Nick Gonzalez such a special baseball player? It's, it's an easy one. It's, it's really two things guys, but it's just, and it's the two things that, that really separate most baseball players. If the skills are close uh, and it's family and integrity makeup but that, that bucket, but it just starts with his family. And then it starts with his attitude and his desire and his work ethic. I mean, those, those two pieces, they're just different. And his, his, you know, baseball is such a sport of show up every day. Uh, you're not going to get it right now. You're going to get it six months from now if you do it every day today, minute by minute. And he just was brought up in a family like that. His dad, Mike, um, his mom, Jill, they're just, that's where his background comes from, where it's just legitimate, intense, dedicated, disciplined work ethic. And he's got a chip on his shoulder, you know, so it's a pretty dangerous combination. When we recruited Nick in New Mexico State, I've told this story many times because it was impactful for me, but I just, I remember his recruiting visit on campus and, you know, it's late in the recruiting process and really nobody's on him and, and it's us and Austin P and here's a kid who's sitting in front of me and I, I tend to talk and get long winded and I'm going for an hour plus and he doesn't take his eyes off me. He doesn't, he doesn't flinch with his body language. Same thing with his family his eye contact, he's upright. I mean, it's just, you're looking at discipline and then you talk to the folks and everybody around him and everybody is saying the same thing. And um, that never changed when he came to New Mexico State. Uh, Friday nights when the freshmen were out at the movies and out to dinner, he's on the tee by himself because he's got something to prove. He's going to make the team. He's going to start, he's going to make the travel roster. He's going to find a way to start. But in his mind, he's going to the big leagues. and with what happens with that is repetitions in the cage, a complete change in body uh, fueled by a change in nutrition uh, and an intensity to work. And the coolest story for me with, with Nick is just him and Joey Ortiz is how those guys really partnered up um, and changed each other's careers. In my opinion, that they, they were roommates. They started showing off about their diet and what they were eating and how they were uh, meal prepping for the week. And they took that part very seriously, just very detailed. So couple that with, uh, with some really lightning fast hands that I didn't see in the recruiting process and through a couple of tiny little swing adjustments, something unlocks and the fastest bat I've ever coached is in front of me. And uh, now I look like a genius and all I've really done is get the hell out of the way and uh, let him go to work. But um, just so proud of him. He deserves all of it. He'll play in the big leagues. He'll stay in the big leagues. Uh, whoever gets him is getting a legitimate winner. He just never lays off the pedal, but yet he's really level-headed and even-keeled. So awesome story of development. I'm curious how much time you had to spend, uh, because I know Teddy Knight actually just from a media standpoint had to spend some time doing this, convincing people outside of your program, like, no, you don't understand. This guy's not just good at New Mexico State. He's not just good in the whack. This guy is one of the best players in college baseball. I imagine you had to do a little bit of that PR for him at a certain point, at least until he went to the Cape and did it to convince people that, no, no, this is a generational talent, not just a good player. Yeah, I think, I think guys, that's where it was. The, the Cape just did it for us, you know, and, and even before that he had gone from the Ohio Valley conference after his freshman year. Um, Coach Davis had a connection there in the Midwest. He went out and he, and he lit that thing up and, and we were able to get him to the Cape. Um, and him being able to do that just for a couple of weeks, um, I was begging Coach Roberts to take him and could do it. 
Um, our thing with, with Nick was, can we get this guy? My thoughts were, let's send him to Coach Roberts, one of the best base running coaches in summer baseball, year in and year out. We had Chris Bissell in Kentucky. He completely changed his career. He led the SEC in stolen bases. And I thought that was a piece for Nick that he had to get better at. But then he, so he's got a short stint in the Cape. He gets 10 or 15 at bats and, and then he, they invite him back and, and then he just goes off. But before he went off and was the Cape MVP, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, that, that's always the knock on New Mexico State, and, and understandably so. It's very offensive. It's 4,000 feet. The numbers can be gaudy. Um, pitching coaches hate to go there. But the one thing that I tell professional people is, is the wind will go to right quite a bit, and it really is a place that can make you a good hitter. Um, if you're right-handed um, and, and you learn to hit the ball that way, you're actually training yourself to back the baseball up, make later decisions, and then you can get reward when that wind is pushing out to right. Nick took full advantage of that. He started to understand how fast his hands were. And what I just always tried to promote with all of our players was just what are we doing against Texas Tech? What's he doing against Arizona, Arizona State, or any of our midweeks um, that we have the opportunity to do? And he lit those up, you know. So when he got to the Cape, I finally didn't have to say a word. But people still wanted to know, hey, was it a fluke? And, you know, I just go back to the family and the work ethic and a guy whose hands are faster than anyone that I've ever coached. And I just – I, the bat speed is incredible. Even on your highlight videos, it's just hitter after hitter after hitter. And then here comes Nick's and you just, whoa, that was a quick one. So, um, hey, Nick's worn me down. I know a lot of people have called. He's kept me busy with uh, being able to coach him the first two years uh, before the current staff. And I know that everybody's doing their homework on him. So he's certainly allowed me to get on the phone a lot more than I maybe would have had to. <laughs> he uh, He's an outstanding one. And he's, uh, you know, it's been fun to, just to see him, you know, see the nation, I guess, kind of wake up to it because, you know, I, I was a part of it too. You know, at first you see, you see some of those numbers coming out of, out of New Mexico state and you say, well, okay, but like, what is it really? And then, you know, as you dig into it more and and understand him as a player more, you see just how, how talented he is. So very excited to see how, uh, how the draft treats him next week. Yeah, certainly us too. One of the other things that's been, uh, you know, kind of floating around the college baseball world the last few weeks is this new baseball model, as as they're calling it. And I just wanted to get your thoughts on that as someone who's, you know, coached in a, a wide variety of places, Kentucky, UCLA, New Mexico State, uh, Washington State, I'm sure I missed a couple. Uh, you know, you've seen a, a large variety of, of what the, the college baseball landscape is. And what, what are your thoughts on, on the new model as, as you've been able to, to look through it and, and, and talk to some people about it? Yeah, uh, it's, uh, it was a really fascinating thing. You know, we had a chance to hear Eric uh, a couple weeks ago, Coach Backich. And, um, you know, I think that's the biggest thing for me, guys, is I, I've just I've been such a, a vagabond travel man um, in my coaching career that that we've. I've just been a part of so many different places, different weather patterns, different conferences, the mid-major with no money, uh, the major with money. So it, it gives me a really cool perspective. And, um, you know, even in serving on the, the D1 committee, I, I'm, I'm always the guy who's been on both sides of it, which is pretty cool. Um, so now here I am in Pullman. Um, you know, I'm at a place where it's cold the first month of the year. Um, I think there's a lot of really great things about the model. I, I would like to maybe see it compressed down a little bit. I think starting the season a couple weeks later would benefit just about everybody. Um, 
but on the flip side, I, I'm a little concerned for the mid-major or a lot of the schools. And until college baseball splits financially, um, I just think that that's a real legitimate thing where Washington State maybe um, can financially handle kids being in the dorms or, or feeding them for a month when school's out. But I think there's a lot of programs that may have trouble with that. But So I think trying to find a balance with maybe you know a two-week uh, started a couple weeks later um, and maybe cut it back uh, a couple weeks earlier um, is my take on it. But I think there was a lot of great things about it. I think a lot of coaches look at that and go, man, there's a lot of exciting things about it. Um, it gives us a chance to maybe equalize out some weather. Um, and I think on the flip side, there's a lot of programs that just flat out have to travel and maybe can't afford that on the front end. So, so many arguments, but I think it's awesome that we're talking about making baseball better. I think the timing is great. Um, and I do think a couple weeks later and, a, and then maybe a couple more weeks uh, into the spring uh, would be really viable and I think is really pos- or, uh, positive. I, I think some version of Omaha during the 4th of July, um, Coach Savage had thrown that out. Uh, UCLA, I think that's, an, that's where our honey hole really would be just in terms of that maybe means 52 games or 53. Certainly we can't go under 50 in my opinion. It's got to have a five in front of it. But um, I would just like to see maybe a couple weeks and uh, let's have Omaha during the 4th of July weekend. Uh, That's what baseball is supposed to be hot dogs and barbecues and beer. And let's do that. But um, I think Eric put a lot of work into it. He deserves a lot of credit and, um, and there's a lot of great things about it. That would be a really cool, uh, you know, start of a tradition to, you know, bring Omaha to the 4th of July. It's cool that it's on Father's Day now, but I think it would be way more meaningful, I guess, on the 4th of July, like you're saying, baseball, America, hot dogs, like that, that all just flows together very Oh, it very just nicely. flows. <laughs> it really flows, you know, and with the, with the recruiting calendar that we had, we were talking about 4th of July being, being dead for three days. Boy, well, if you're not in Omaha, well, there's your three days to barbecue and watch Omaha. So, yeah, I mean, <laughs> it'd be pretty cool. Absolutely. Well, you know, we've we've had this strange spring and, uh, you know, obviously no baseball and, and all the rest of that. What have you been doing uh, to occupy your time? Are you are you, you know, DIYing around your new house? Are you uh, getting into to books or, or movies? What, what have you been doing to, to use some of this extra time you've got? Yeah, I have. Uh, I feel busier than I've ever been. And I think it's just the fact of, of having meetings and, and trying to fill my calendar, which we do. I'll tell you a couple of things that I've tried to do, guys, is, is number one is take the opportunity to promote Washington State the best that I can. And if we're not going to play, um, you know, I've got a, a four bullet social media daily rule that I send something out four times a day about Washington State just to promote the university and the department. Um, that's the easy one. But but for me, during the time, I stumbled into what an unbelievable opportunity to improve. Um, I have Zoomed with four major league hitting coaches. I've Zoomed with Joe Madden. I've Zoomed with Ron Renicky. I mean, and these so many people during this time have been so open with their time. Um, so individually, professionally, I've tried to develop um, to become a better coach, a better speaker, a better leader for our team. Um, and then I've tried to do the same thing with our coaches and we've tried to do the same thing with our team and uh, getting them in front of leaders across the country. We had a Green Beret special force member talk to our team. Uh, we've had major league hitting coaches, pitching coaches, big league hitters, uh, big league pitchers talking to our team during the meeting times. Um, 
and we've just connected a lot more. So that's the first thing is, is I've really tried to do is just professionally and individually develop. And then the second thing is just develop the team at a much different level. Um, and then the third thing is I've, I've started writing. I've never done that. I've never had the time to do it. Um, and just writing a, a thing called my story. And it was from a, a mentor of mine. Uh, and he, he meets with our coaching staff here at Washington state. He impacted us at New Mexico state. His name is Jerry Lujan. Um, and Jerry's with a, a, a mentorship group uh, on, on leadership. And his whole thing is spend time thinking about your thinking. And so I've just gone to, to work on writing and you, you, I've ended up finding out what's really important to me, family, culture, and really a lot of it's been strengthening what I really felt was important to me. And I don't want to get off onto a political side note, but I think just even about that, thinking about myself and my why and what's important to me, I, I just think in the times that we're in right now, if, when coaches or players or anybody, if we just spend more time thinking about who we are, I think it gives us a much greater opportunity to respect our fellow human being when we really know who we are and maybe gives us a little bit of light. I'm not sure who he is and I'm going to respect him at face value for who he is and not necessarily generalize or, or understand maybe from an opinion who he is. So I don't want to get off on a tangent there, but um, a lot of development individually, a lot of, a lot of team development, professional development. And I can tell you that it's been about four zooms a day and, and guys, this has been awesome doing the audio. Uh, those, those video zooms, they were, they wear me down. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's been a lot of them. Well, that's awesome to hear. You know, it de definitely, everyone has had some more time to think. And so to anytime you can use that productively, I think is, uh, is definitely a win in uh, what has been an unusual spring to say the least. Yeah. You know, and we've, we've even done things like um, have our guys uh, enter into if they had an interest in doing it into personality indexing and Colby indexing and everybody doing Y training. We do the Y training with our team. And I just do that to heighten awareness of who we are as individuals to impact locker room culture. But uh, we've dove into that even deeper over this time. And again, it's more of a preparation for next fall, but um, it's been cool. And we've been able to even evaluate kids coming in versus kids that we currently have. And that's a fascinating prospect too, that uh, we have different personalities in-house versus coming in, which, which vows to the recruiting and how that goes and maybe what we're selling. So um, just fascinating stuff. But, I think the way that I look at it, COVID is obviously it's been tragic for so many people and it's given me an opportunity to be so thankful and grateful to be here in college baseball and to still have a position and a, a position of a job. Um, and it's been an opportunity for us just to, when I look at it, it's like, this is a tremendous opportunity to improve. So I've taken full advantage of it. I basically have a calendar of just, I go Monday through Friday, eight to five, and, and then we take the weekends with the family and that, that's kind of how we've operated. Outstanding. Well, we really uh, appreciate you uh, finding some time for us in, in that busy calendar of yours and uh, you know, joining us here on the Baseball America College podcast today. Well, thank you, guys. I mean, Washington State uh, is on with Baseball America. That's, that's big time. So we really appreciate you having us on. And uh, thanks for all the great work you do and, and love the magazine and all you do. It's just awesome. So thanks for keeping me busy when I scroll my Twitter and Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> we really appreciate it coach all right guys have a great day thank you again to washington state coach brian green for joining us here on the baseball america college podcast uh joe brian green is always a uh 
a very upbeat guy, but when you're looking at the Cougars and you're listening to him and, and, you know, it's, it's not hard to, uh, you know, kind of embrace the, the, uh, the positive attitude and the optimism he has about that program right now. Yeah, no doubt about that. And I'm, I always appreciate a coach who has that kind of attitude and not just, um, not just as a facade either. Um, you know, sometimes you, you, you get the impression that the positive attitude and the positive thinking are a little bit of a facade in some cases, but you know, you, you can really, with, with Brian Green, I really appreciated his attitude from the beginning of looking at Washington state as, as a challenge. Yes. But as a place where, you know, he's kind of taken a why not attitude to why can't we, why can't we win here? And, and I think, across all sports at Washington state, you, you hear all the time about why that job is hard. And there are some valid reasons why that job is difficult, whether is one of them geographic isolation relative to a lot of other places is another one. But, uh, you know, perhaps the facility is a part of that that's changing, but he really kind of flipped that on its head and looks for reasons why they, you know, look, looks to say like, why can't we do it here? And I think he brings up some good points with, you know, yeah, they Pullman is is way up there and it's way out there, but that also leads to a pretty tight knit campus and town community. And if you win there, and he draws the 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 comparison to Corvallis, and I'm not from the Pacific Northwest, I can't do a detailed breakdown of the similarities and differences in those two places. But certainly, Corvallis is a place that has really wrapped their arms around the Oregon State baseball program and really supported it. And I don't know that you you know that yes, they've won a couple of national championships, a few national championships at this point. So I get that, that there's a little bit of a difference there. But if Washington State gets to the point where they're competing to be in the postseason year after year, it's, it's easy to see how, how the Pullman community might be able to do something similar with Washington State in, in that program. So, you know, I also see similarities uh, in the way that people talk about, you know, the challenges there and they talk about the challenges of Texas Tech. And, uh, you know, I think that that community also similarly embraces it's college sports teams and you've seen both what uh, tech is doing in baseball under Tim Tadlock, but also in basketball and, and football for that matter. So, uh, you know, the, it, there are a lot of, there are places like that that just historically have been difficult places to win. But if, if you hit it right, they're, they're waiting for you. They're ready to embrace the winner. Yeah, it's a good point. And I, look, I've always said that difficult jobs are, might be difficult, but all it takes is, is the right, person. And sometimes the right person in one place is not the right person in other places. It's not necessarily just the raw quality of a coach or coaching staff. They're just certain, you know, the right people, right times, right places. And these jobs are all seem insurmountable until someone pulls it off. And and that's, that's true, not just in baseball, but in, in other college sports as well. There's, there's really very, I believe there are really very few instances of completely unwinnable jobs, unwinnable programs. Um, I think a lot of times it's, you know, takes just the right person at the right time. And sometimes that the Venn diagram of the right person and the right time are, are difficult to, to, to match up and get in the middle of there. Uh, but that doesn't mean they're impossible. And so I, I think um, this, this will be fun to, to watch play out. It, it helps to have a coach like Brian Green, who's just easy to talk to and very willing to, to talk about his program and share what's going on in his program. That makes it easy to to follow along and easy to kind of get excited about. So there's that piece, but also, you know, there's no really getting away from the fact that Washington state has not been very good the last few years. And 
you know, they've, they've been towards the bottom of the Pac-12, and we've, we've talked a lot about the plight of the Pac-12 in, in, in a lot of different ways and from a lot of different angles, but one of them is just that, um, you know, they need the bottom of that league as a conference. They need the bottom of that league to be um, at least passable and, and relatively strong to kind of keep those series against the teams at the bottom of the conference from being complete anchors on the rest of the league from an RPI standpoint and allow some of those teams that are hovering around 500 in conference to have RPIs and other metrics that will allow them to be in position to get into the postseason. And right now that's for a number of reasons, but not the least of which is the bottom of the conference that just hasn't been strong enough. The PAC 12 has had some trouble doing that in recent years. Yeah. I mean, Washington state in 2019 won 11 games overall, like 11. That's not 11 Pac-12 games that they won 11 games. They won three Pac-12 games. And, you know, so this year, the fact that they go nine and seven, um, you know, are probably a week away from maybe, maybe a little longer, depending on, you know, I don't know their midweek schedule during, during the coming out of the shut, you know, the, the first Pac-12 weekend, but they very quickly would have, you know, reached that, 11 win mark and surpassed it uh you know had the season not been shut down and you know going from you know just hitting that mark as quickly as they were on pace to do uh is is a really significant um you know sign of improvement in the first season for brian green and and, and for the cougars and um you know i i wish we could have seen them impact wealth play because that would have been a, a the purest measuring stick that, that we could have gotten, but you know, it, it's uh, the, the, the middle of the pack, the middle to bottom of the pack 12 is a little open right now. We've talked about that before that, you know, right now the pack 12 is, is, you know, there are some real big powers at the top when you look at UCLA and, and Arizona state and uh, you know, Stanford and, and Oregon state have, have been there in the not so distant, not so much this year, but, you certainly were in 19 and in Arizona's, you know, right there as well. But, you know, after that, the, there's, there's room for, you know, movement, uh, you know, f- whether it's, you know, Washington going to Omaha in, in 2018 or, you know, Oregon had its moments, uh, you know, five to six years ago and, and certainly can again, but, you know, there, there's room for a Washington state to, to come up there. And, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see, where Brian Green takes his program, he's a, uh, you know, he he turned around a, a you know, a, a difficult place before at, at New Mexico State. Turned around might be the, the, the wrong phrasing. I'm not fully aware of uh, where New Mexico State was for like the decade before Brian Green got there, but he certainly got them uh, to a, a pretty high height. Uh, you know, turned them into one of the the best teams in the WAC. Uh, the community really embraced what they were doing there, and and you know he played a, a large role in the Gonzalez's development and, you know, everyone's going to see the, the fruits of that labor uh, next Wednesday when, when uh, Gonzalez goes in the top 10 picks. So it, that was an impressive job to do it again at Washington state, obviously won't be easy, but uh, you know, he certainly has proven himself as, as someone that can win at, you know, kind of a, an outpost in, in the college baseball world. You know, New Mexico state is, is not, uh, it's not in the power hierarchy by any means, but, you know, they, uh, they, they did a good job at, at building things up there and, and getting to a point where they, uh, you know, they can compete for, for WAC titles and, and produce first round, a first round pick. So 
you know, to, to take that blueprint and, and apply it in Pullman is, uh, would certainly seem to be somewhat possible at least. Yeah, I agree. I, I think there, it's a similar situation. I think within the, within the context of the, of the conference, um, New Mexico state, I think was starting from a little bit of a better place. They'd been, they went to a regional in, in 12 and they had been fairly competitive in the WAC. So within the confines of, of the context of the, of the conference, I think New Mexico state was starting from a higher place when, when Brian Green got there than where Washington State is. But I think the similarity certainly rings true in, just in terms of, look, at, at Washington State, at least as it stands right now, you're not going to get first pick among the kids who, you know, certainly the kids who want to go are considering places in Southern California like, like UCLA and, and even USC. You're probably not getting first pick among the kids who would otherwise maybe want to go to Washington or the Oregon schools, what have you. So you're having to be a little creative in recruiting. And, you know, the, I, the hope is, of course, and this is true of all programs, the hope is, and this is how programs get built. You, you get the kids you can, you find the best fits that maybe are a little bit overlooked in the recruiting process. And here and there, you might find a kid who just really wants to be at Washington State for any number of reasons. And you, you start with that. And then you start getting a little bit better kids when you have success and you build out a proof of concept. And, then you're off and, and running. And that's, that's the goal here. And certainly I think we can see that at New Mexico state. You mentioned, uh, you know, his, his first year and, and interesting, if you're into, uh, you know, kind of the number symmetry, Brian Green's first season at New Mexico state, they won, you guessed it, 11 games. And he turned it around quick. The next year they won, I think it was 35. Uh, Nick Gonzalez's first year, they went 40 games overall, get to a regional. And then in 2019, they tie for the WAC title. Um, I think the, the, the thought is that, you know, that's kind of um, – it's a similar type of build than what he was doing at New Mexico State, what he's going to be trying to do at Washington State. So certainly I think there's a, a, a parallel to draw there, to be sure. And, um, you know, time, time will – it'll be interesting to see how, you know, we got into it a little bit, but it'll be interesting to see how you keep this momentum going into 2021. I've just been generally interested to talk to first-year coaches about, you know, is 20, 2021 – kind of a continuation of year one in a lot of ways. You didn't have as much time to evaluate your roster. Maybe you were planning on bringing in a really big recruiting class because you had, you were maybe a little bit upper class heavy. Now those kids are coming back. How do you bounce? There's just a lot of questions about that. So I'm interested to see that from a Washington state standpoint, but more to the point in years three, four, five, what this program grows to become. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, as, as great as the, the challenge can be, uh, for a coach or, and a program that, that, you know, we're adjusting this year with the, that being their first year on campus, you know, I, I have to imagine the, the challenge for coaches that are getting hired this summer is, is even greater as they deal with, you know, roster crunches from, from extra eligibility and, you know, the fact that they can't go out and recruit this summer to, uh, you know, what, what are the financial realities that, that we're now having to deal with, uh, as, as I try and get acclimated and, and all the rest of that, you know, it's, uh, it's pretty significant. And as a result, you know, the coaching carousel last year was, was very hot. Um, you know, Brian Green is one of, uh, I think it's three new coaches in the pack this year. Um, yeah, it's three, no four, right? Yeah. Four <laughs> Brian Green, Mitch Cannon at Oregon state, Mark Wazikowski at Oregon and, um, USC with, um, Jason Gill. Jason Gill, yes, at USC. There's your fourth. Uh, I really should have uh, pulled up last year's coaching carousel page before I, I started down that path. Uh, but the uh, you know the 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 coaching carousel this year 
is much smaller. Uh, we anticipated this once you know the realities of of the the situation became more apparent a, a couple months ago, but it has fully come to fruition that uh, you know we we have about half a dozen job openings ultimately, and some of them you know for the most part the, these job openings were created before the start of the season. Uh, there was a, a group of coaches that left after the new year for um, mostly for for jobs in, in pro ball, and you know they got filled with an interim in in 2020, and you know now in some places that interim tag has been removed like Holy Cross Ed Kahovic uh, is, is going to take over that program on, on a permanent basis. Um, a similar situation I think is probably happening at St. John's. We, we haven't gone forward there, whether Mike Hampton's going to get the interim tag for another season or whether he, uh, he will be hired as the, the, the permanent head coach there as well. But there have been some, some changes uh, we saw. Mark McMillan get hired at Charleston Southern. Uh, he was the volunteer assistant at Ole Miss, uh, maybe the highest profile, uh, you know, pure hire uh, that, that happens in this cycle. Uh, last week, we saw another one of these jobs get filled with um, Jordan Banfield, who was the assistant at Akron, the, the recruiting coordinator at Akron, uh, get, get hired by Oakland. And, uh, He'll take over uh, that program in, in the Horizon League. Uh, Pacific remains open. Uh, that one is uh, one of the few remaining jobs left. But you know, Joe, as we've uh, as we've gone through this uh, somewhat unusual carousel, what what's stuck out to you uh, thus far? Yeah, I think the I was a little bit surprised to see Banfield end up at at Oakland, and not because. Not because there, that, that there's no belief in, in him as a coach or, or what he brings or anything like that. Actually, I think just the opposite. You know, I, I think it was – I think it said something about his potential and, and the way he was thought of that Chris Sabo brought him in to be on the Akron staff because Chris Sabo, and you and I talked to him before the season, he was very open about not knowing what he doesn't know just yet in the college game. And – so I think it meant something that he, he clearly knew the importance of bringing in assistants that knew the college game a little better, that could recruit effectively. And so I think it matters that Banfield was on that staff. I think it says something about his potential there, and he's an impressive, an impressive guy. And so it's not even from that standpoint, but it's just, you know, these coaching searches sometimes, you know, you see that schools kind of will, will alternate back and forth in, in coaching style and experience level and things like that. And the last couple guys at Oakland were, were young. Colin Kaline was a young coach and they had co-coaches with he and uh, Jack Healy, no relation, uh, different spelling, but uh, those were young, those were young guys. And, you know, so it's a little bit of a surprise that Oakland went when, when they decided to, to make a change for, for one reason or another, that they didn't go the other direction. And there were some guys reported to be in the mix there with Ty Neal at Cincinnati and Jeff Ogoluski, who was at, longtime assistant at Central Michigan who had experience and had that wealth of experience and were, were legitimate candidates. And so, um, I, you know, I kind of thought they'd go that route, um, you know, with a more experienced guy, uh, but they went with, with Banfield and it's, you know, I always love the experiment of hi hiring a relatively unproven coach in a job like this um, just because it, it, it's, it's always interesting to see those co the coaches that really take off in that scenario. And that's how oftentimes you can see the guys who were just meant to do this. It, you know, they get that job early on and they're just off and running. And so I'm always interested to kind of see how it plays out 
from that standpoint. But I can't, when we went into this coaching carousel and you looked at the Oakland job, I can't say that I was really expecting them to go the route of the uh, relatively inexperienced, super young coach. Yeah, Jordan, I want to say is 33. And uh, he is definitely known for his recruiting. Uh, that's what he's done uh, UTRGV and and now at uh, at Akron. Um, so that's what Oakland is is really going to be looking for is you know having him come in, be energetic, and you know provide a, a boost in in the recruiting so that they can get some better players there. And I would say that uh, from what I hear, he's talking to similar people um, for his assistance. And so that, that's going to be interesting to see, see where it goes. But yeah, I mean, uh, you know, we saw Doug Schreiber, the former longtime Purdue coach, get hired last year at Purdue Fort Wayne, um, you know, just down the road there. They're from Oakland, and it, it would not have been, you know, a surprise, I guess, to, to see Oakland go a similar route. But, you know, taking a big swing or I mean, taking a swing, I guess, on uh, – on a guy who hasn't been a head coach before, uh, but who has that, that energy and those, those chops for recruiting, um, you know, that, that has a chance to really pay off for Oakland if, um, you know, if they hit on it. And, and so we'll see, uh, we'll see Jordan get a chance. He's from that area. And I, you know, it'll be interesting to see, uh, see where he takes the program uh, in, in 2021 and, and beyond. Yeah, I totally agree there. And look, we talk about, programs that have challenges and Oakland fits that bill with the geography of it and that they're in a league that you know has a couple of teams in Wright State and in Illinois Chicago that just kind of have a stranglehold on, on that conference and so um, that's that certainly has its its challenges as well uh, kind of on another note you know you mentioned Pacific still open and, and obviously this coaching carousel has been has been fraught with challenges just because of of, of the COVID-19 situation and, and how that's probably made life a little more difficult in doing a coaching search and being a coach trying to get hired in a coaching search. But, you know, Pacific, I think, is in a, in a good position where the pool of candidates they're drawing from, they, they really didn't have to worry much at all about overlap, you know, being on the, on the West Coast when a lot of these other jobs are in the Midwest or on the East Coast. And so I think that plays into, into their hand a little bit and, and just seeing the reported candidates that are out there you know, that, that seems to be the case that it's, it's, you know, they're looking for a West coast guy, which totally makes sense, it's, but it, it does make it to where they, they've had to worry relatively little about having to, to, to rush this or push this through or, or, or do anything faster than is comfortable just to make sure they get their guy. Yeah. I would say that's probably largely been true of, of everyone. There hasn't been a ton of overlap anywhere. It's kind of like, every region has its one opening. Um, you know, maybe that's a little less true in the Northeast, but again, it looks like Holy Cross and St. John's are both just going to end up with the guy that they, um, you know, started the season with. So, you know, the, there, there has been some overlap, but, you know, Charleston Southern's pool was not really what Oakland's pool was. And um, it, it's, uh, it's been a strange year uh, on the carousel. Um it's also kind of strange. I didn't write my 50 names to watch on the carousel this year. Uh, you know, I, I always enjoy doing that and, and digging through, you know, the possibilities and, um, you know, who, who has elevated themselves over the last year or two and, you know, watching Brian Green ascend at, at New Mexico State and, and get himself in position to, to get a job like Washington State. Um, 
what was interesting or seeing how USC's search unfolded and, uh, you know, Jason Gill ultimately uh, get, getting a shot there and, you know, all, all these sorts of things. I enjoy that. And, uh, you know, we're missing that this summer. Uh, obviously, that's very low on the priority list of, of things we're missing. But uh, it, it'll also be just interesting to watch how the college baseball coaching world evolves from here. Um, no one is quite sure how long this financial crunch lasts, of course. Um, no one is quite sure what, you know, some of the reckoning that perhaps college athletic departments are doing right now, what that's going to mean. Are, are they going to be less willing to give out big money contracts going forward? Are they going to want to have coaches on shorter contracts? You know, all of these things, who knows? Uh, so it, it's going to be interesting to watch how that unfolds going forward. Uh, but you know, th- this summer, definitely a quieter summer. And I honestly think that probably spills over into next year as well, that you might see some changes, you know, we haven't seen any change in a major conference this year and, you know, maybe that'll change in 2021. But I think for the most part right now, uh, things, things are going to be a little quieter than what we had grown, grown accustomed to uh, in the last couple of years. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I just think the, it's just a confluence of factors that are going to make that the case, whether it's, you know, I, I think that it, it, programs just haven't had as much time to, you know, some of these coaches just haven't been fully evaluated. I think the fact that 2020 is just going to end up kind of being a punt year for everybody on, on top of the fact that, you know, the financial situation being what it is, that there may not be a lot of schools in a position to be able to, um, look to reinvest by spending more money on, on a head coach than they did otherwise and some of the expenses that are involved with that. And so I, I think you're right. I think um, it'll, it'll obviously, I think I anticipate it'll be a little more involved than it was this year for obvious reasons, but, but I, I certainly think it'll be a long, eh, long time. It is maybe a little too strong word, but it will be some period of time before we really get back to as much activity as we had just this last off season. Absolutely. Well, that's something we'll be tracking going forward, obviously more in the long term, uh, but we'll, we'll certainly be watching that. So continue uh, checking baseballamerica.com for your uh, coaching carousel needs, uh, such as they are <laughs> this off season. You can, you can check out the full carousel as it stands right now uh, over there. I, I keep that updated as, as often as, as is necessary. Uh, so that'll do it today for us on the Baseball America College podcast. We'll be back here on Friday with another edition. Uh, that will be our, we'll continue uh, our, our series of rewatching classic games uh, this Friday. Joe and I still uh, still working out what the exact plan is for this Friday, but th- there will be a podcast. Don't, don't worry. So make sure you are subscribed uh, on your favorite podcasting app, be that Apple podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you're listening to podcasts, you can find us. Please su- please subscribe, please rate, please review. Uh, We appreciate all those things and they help other people to find the podcast as well. So it is uh, is a big help uh, to us when you do that. You can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Ted Cahill. Joe is at Joe Healy BA. And again, there is plenty of content over at baseballamerica.com right now and will be throughout the week, um, whether you're looking for college or draft. uh, We got plenty of that right now as uh as we we get right down to the uh to draft day next week so check all of that out and we'll be back here to talk to you again on friday until then i want to thank you guys for listening thank you to brian green for joining us today on the podcast thanks to joe 
I've been Teddy Cahill. We'll see you next time.